Feel Good Hemp is the first and only brand to offer high-quality CBD oil products alongside a free platform that offers proven self-help and self-healing techniques, all to help you feel good naturally. Feel Good Hemp was started by Noah and his wife, Danielle, after they used hemp oil and other techniques to save Noah's father from a terminal cancer diagnosis. Now, I heard this story firsthand when I interviewed Noah. It's a real good one, and it's probably the most heartfelt and compelling story I've ever heard about why someone started a CBD company. So Feel Good Hemp is more than just a great place to buy CBD products. It's actually a community of like-minded souls committed to feeling good and doing good. So use coupon code GENIUS33 at checkout to save a third or 33% site-wide on your first purchase. Visit feelgoodhemp.org to shop now and access their free empowerment platform. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Callie Estes. She's the CEO of uh, her company, and she's a number one bestselling author. Uh, She's sought after as an addiction professional, a life coach, a recovery coach, and a wellness guru. Uh, She uses talk therapy and positive change to assist her clients. Uh, but I'll let her explain that more. So, Kelly, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. If you would, tell me a bit about your background. Like, how did you get to where you are? Well, I wanted to be an FBI agent. And I actually did my internship oh. at SCI Rockview, which is a prison. And they put me with the people that had drug and alcohol problems. So I actually learned how to deal with people in that setting right away. And then my mentor was ex-CIA. So I learned body language and how to read people when they lie, which made me really, really good at working with people that had a drug or alcohol problem because they lie. And I could basically read through everything when they were talking to me. And then from there, I worked in treatment and worked with women and men and, you know, young kids that had problems and worked my way up to private practice. Well, quick question. Were you supposed to be like a profiler or a psychologist or what was your job title? I was just interning as a counselor, learning the ropes of what counseling would look like in the prison system, trying to get into FBI profiling. And then when I realized I was really good at this, I stuck with this. Uh, From there, I just, you know, over the years, I switched from therapy to coaching, which was more powerful. And now I do almost predominantly coaching with some therapy. And I do private practice. I work with celebrities and executives and higher functioning individuals. And then 10 years ago, I started an educational institution to train people to do what I do. So we have grown to 27 countries for the largest in the world for addiction coaching and sex addiction coaching, internet addiction coaching, you name it, we sell it. Oh, and you you said uh, coaching is more powerful than therapy. Why? Therapy goes backwards and it keeps people stuck in their stuff that happened in the past. Coaching is more present and uh, forward focused. So things that are happening today and things that are going to happen tomorrow. And there's more accountability in coaching where the emphasis is on the client doing all of the work and the coach being more of a guide. Whereas in therapy, 
the counselor has more of a responsibility to give the guidance. So we see a hmm. better return in addiction with coaching. That's really interesting. I, I, I don't know. I feel like it's a good idea to explore that dynamic. I would think coaching clients are going to be, by definition, self-motivated and maybe a lot of entrepreneurial people. And then therapy clients, I guess it's more of a passive person that would do that or like there's just a different kind of person that would go for therapy? Well, up until about five years ago, the push for therapy was, okay, if you have an issue, go see a therapist. But a lot of therapists couldn't deal with some of the issues they were presented with. And a lot of the therapists really didn't know what to do with those individuals. So coaching is that like sweet spot for addiction, because if you go to therapy for addiction, they're going to tell you, okay, so this is why you do it. Great. But now what? Well, we don't really know. You know, go work the 12 steps, go do a yoga class or figure it out. That's therapy. But coaching in addiction is more real time. So someone comes to me and says, okay, you know, I want to get sober. This is why I use. Okay, great. My next question is, what are you going to do about it? It's not, let's go back and talk about the trauma and all that. What are we going to do now and tomorrow to get better coping mechanisms? What's your plan? And a lot of people that have addiction hate that question. What's my plan? Because they have no plan. They fly by the seat of their pants. Whether they're entrepreneurs or celebrities or the kid next door, a lot of people that have an addiction have trouble making that plan for three months, six months, and nine months in their personal life. Maybe in business they can do it, but in personal is where they're stuck. So the coaching piece helps them get unstuck. I mean, it's just from my experience, but it seems like, and I've gotten in trouble with this with my wife, like, she'd be like, don't solve my problems, just listen. And, you know, as a guy, it <laughs> kind of drives me nuts. Do you see that dynamic when you coach women versus men? Like, do the women tend to want to talk more about stuff and the men want to take action or is there no correlation? That's funny because my husband and I are the complete opposite. I'm the solver. He'll come to me with, what do you think about this? And I'll go, here's what we're going to do. I already have the answer. So the answer to that is, is no, it's not women and men based. Most people that have an addiction have had other people solve their problems for so long that they don't realize they can do it, A, and B, they don't have the skill set to make it happen. So when they come to me, I arm them with the skill set and the mindset that they can do it. Okay. What, what kind of person have you observed will go to therapy and then what kind of person will, will ask for coaching instead? And like people with these problems, do they even know there is such a thing as coaching for it or just... I would think the default would be like, oh, I have this addiction and, and everyone's telling me to get therapy. So I'm going to find a therapist. Well, right now our coaching is hot. So most people that have an addiction are told to go see an addictions coach as opposed to a therapist. So we're actually, the coaching side of things is booming. But people that tend to seek therapy have more intense things. They might have intensive trauma, uh, extensive trauma. They might have anxiety. That's not something a coach would be able to work with. They might have physiological problems that cause other problems, like a neurological problem that they have more, you know, more weight to per se in therapy. Uh, people also that have things they can't control. For example, they lost their job. They got a divorce, not because of something they did, but because of circumstance. That's more therapy. Coaching is more based upon the ability to want to change and then teaching someone how to make the change versus somebody who's got mental health issues like schizophrenia or anxiety or bipolar, that's therapy. That's where we want to keep the therapy. But people that are for all intents and purposes normal, they just have an addiction. 
it's just a matter of getting them unstuck from the addiction. So it's a little bit different. Does it make sense to have like a two-tier system where someone starts out with a therapist and then once they reach a certain level, now they want to elevate to a coach to you know finish them off or to really get them beyond their, their problems? Not really. Um, I've seen, having done this 27 years, I think therapy fails people with addiction. Therapy for mental health is great. Bipolar, schizophrenia, anxiety, all of those things, sure, it's great. But addiction, it's not so great because all therapy does is rehash the past. And in addiction, they want to stay stuck. So if you come to me as a therapist and I'm going to talk about, you know, the trauma that happened when you were 16 and you're now 46, you love that. Because when you leave, you're going to be uncomfortable and upset and you're going to want to get high. So that doesn't work. In coaching, if you come to me, I'm going to say, sure, you have this trauma. Get it. I got it. Great. But now what? What are you going to do different? So it's more focused on the problems of now. And we can go back and talk about the therapy but, and, the, and the trauma, but I also want to move forward. So it's a very different approach. And therapy is designed to be months, if not years along. Coaching is designed to be three to six months. Most of my clients, I tell them at the end of six months, you should have fired me because I did a good job and you don't need me. And that's kind of what I see. So okay. I want to make sure that they can go and be, you know, flourish. Oh, interesting. Okay. And you, you mentioned some of the addictions that you deal with, like, Let's delve into them a little bit. So, you know, a substance abuse addiction, drugs or alcohol, like, okay, so when you deal with those kind of people, are the alcohol addicted people different from the drug addicted people? So that's kind of what society does. They separate the alcoholics from the addicts, and that's a 12-step thing. But here's the bottom line. Everybody uses, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or any anything, any coping mechanism, internet, Amazon, shopping. They use it to do one of two things. They use because they're bored or they use to numb out. That's it. So the first question I ask my clients, what is it? Are you using because you're bored and you've done everything? Or is it that you're escaping something? Most uppers clients, so cocaine, Adderall, methamphetamine, crack, uppers are usually bored. They have everything. They've traveled everywhere. They're successful in business. They're successful in relationship. And they're just bored. My heroin users, my Xanax users, my alcoholics, uh, my people that want to go down or numb out usually have a trauma. So that's sort of how it's separated. And then from there, we figure out what caused the trauma and unlock it. Or if you're bored, what else can you do to stimulate your dopamine receptors that make you want to be happy? Because the stimulants basically flood your brain with dopamine and all of a sudden you're happy, but it's an artificial happy and it's going to run out. Now, that's completely different than a process addiction, which is sex addiction, internet addiction, shopping addiction, gaming, all of that is process addiction. So that's a whole different way of treating it. Supplementing with hemp CBD products is one of the best things you can do for your overall wellness or to improve conditions like chronic pain, sleep issues, anxiety or depression, or other conditions related to inflammation. Feel Good Hemp offers high-quality CBD oil products alongside a free platform of proven self-help and self-healing techniques all to help you feel good naturally. They're offering our listeners a very generous 33% off their first purchase. Use the coupon code GENIUS33 at checkout, and you'll save 33%. Visit feelgoodhemp.org to shop now and access their free empowerment platform. What does that mean, a process addiction? What is that? So a process addiction is is something that you don't add to your body. So, for example, if somebody's addicted to cocaine, they are ingesting 
the drug, right? If they're addicted to alcohol, they're ingesting the alcohol. Somebody who's addicted to sex or internet or even shopping isn't ingesting that. They're looking at it. They're watching it. They're purchasing it. And when they do it, their brain releases its own natural dopamine, serotonin. When that happens, the brain gets really excited. That's the happy chemical. So it's harder to break the process addiction than it is a drug or alcohol addiction because it's your body's own chemicals that it's releasing versus, you know, a cocaine addict or a heroin addict. It's as simple as, well, don't do that. Don't take the cocaine, don't take the heroin and your body won't ping, you know, your brain won't ping the serotonin dopamine. That makes sense. But you can't tell somebody, well, you can't go shopping because you have to, for all intents and purposes, go shopping for food and clothes and whatnot. And you can't say to somebody, well, just don't have sex because that's kind of redundant. And people that are addicted to food, you can't say, well, just don't eat. So it's a lot of completely different way we have to treat the process addiction than we do the external stimulus. So what are the, um, you talked about people that seek uppers versus downers, but what about people that have these process addictions? Why do they fall into them? What need is it fulfilling for them? Again, it's either boredom or escape. So it just depends on the person and why they use what they use. So for example, give you an example. I have a client who is a stay-at-home housewife and her husband started working longer hours with COVID and he's gone longer and he's, yeah, he's a doctor. So he's not around and she's home 16 hours by herself. So she's bored and she started shopping and shopping to the point now where both of their spare bedrooms are filled to to the brim of unopened boxes from Amazon. So she now is using shopping because there's nothing else to do. And her partner's nowhere to be found because he's working. So we Hmm. have to deal with that differently than we would say her using cocaine. Yeah, my garage is full of opened Amazons. You know, the boxes from Amazon, we get to clear out every six months, but at least it's not filled with unopened stuff, but hmm, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. What would the coaching be like? Like, what kind of things would you recommend the person do? So with this particular situation, I had asked her, you know, what do you enjoy? And she said, going to the gym. Well, the gym was closed, going to yoga. So how do we get around that? What can we do? Can we do Zoom yoga? Can we do Zoom, Zoom Zumba? Can we have a trainer come over? So we started looking at things that she liked to do around the obstacle that we had. And then I'm looking at him spending more time with her and maybe her taking a trip and going to a day spa. So we started putting some fun into her daily routine. And then I asked her, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Besides being a housewife, which plan? And she had some hopes and dreams. And I said, let's start working on that. She wanted to create a jewelry studio. So let's start creating a jewelry studio. Let's start, you know, marketing it and creating it. And lo and behold, she created a whole company around it. So that's the kind of stuff coaching does is get them unstuck and go, what can we do that's a better activity that's going to ping your brain with that dopamine rush that isn't a detrimental activity? So instead of being destructive, how do we become constructive? How did this lady talk about her shopping problem? Like, How did she describe it? Do they? You know, purchasing things, they come, they make her feel good. She opens the box, she looks at it, she wears it, she sticks it in the room. And then it got to the point where it was too many boxes and too much stuff. And he started complaining. And now it's causing an issue in their marriage and he's threatening divorce. So now she has to get it fixed. So what became, what was fun has now become stressful. Hmm, okay. How do people describe a sex addiction? Like how does that manifest? Is he looking at porn all day or? 
are they seeking out partners everywhere? Like what, what happens there? Depends on the client. So I've got one client who masturbates because it's self, self-soothing because that's what he did as a teenager. When his mother and dad would fight, that was his way of dealing with stress. So when him and his wife have an argument, that's what he does, which upsets her because then she's saying, well, I'm sitting right here. You know, am I not important? So that was a coping mechanism he learned in teenage years. So anything you learn, you can unlearn. So we have to work on disconnecting that activity as soothing and make it less soothing. For example, I also have an executive who has an affinity for escorts, high-end escorts. And his theory is I work hard. I provide for my wife. I pay all the bills. I pay for the kids. She can buy anything she wants on the Black Amex. So if I want to, you know, engage in an escort here and there for fun, I should be allowed to. So he has a justification for his behavior. So with him, it's a little bit different. I had to explain to him, okay, so if she did that, would that be okay? And he said, well, absolutely not. That's cheating. So in his mind, because he did X, he could do Mm. Y. But for her, she doesn't, right. So that was more of a, well, this is a double standard. So the bottom line is you don't feel value. That's what Mm. it was. You don't feel value. And you knew if she catches you, this is the one thing she'd really be upset about. So it's like, I don't feel a value. So I'm going to do something to get away with it like a child. And when I explained that to him, he stopped and went, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're like a five-year-old having a temper tantrum. So this is your way of passive aggressive. And then he kind of got into it. And he's like, okay, so what are you really getting out of these escorts? And he's like, well, it's my way to decompress. Okay, what else can you do? And that's where coaching goes. What did this person turn to instead where you're not far enough along where they've, they've stopped and they're channeling their energy elsewhere? He, he started a nonprofit in another country and his go-to was to fly and work, work with these people in in another country. And that became his outlet. That's my fun thing. So, and then we're talking about people that already own yachts and have been all over the world and that kind of stuff. So it's not like I could say, oh, okay, you know, go take a trip, go to Europe and hang out. So it's when you're dealing with people with, with lots of money that have done a lot of things, there's not much left for them that excites them. So that old saying, you know, what do you get for the, you know, the man or the person that has everything? But so what is the answer to that? When people have all the resources they need, what kind of things would appeal to them? Well, it depends on the client. So it depends on, it depends on what their goals are. So I've worked with married couples where certain things are just excessive that they want to tone it down. They don't want to stop the activity, but let's tone it down. I've worked with individuals where it's out of control, where we need to just completely detach from their drug of choice. So it depends on the person. Are they able to manage it or is it really ruining their life? What's, um, are there any disorders that, I don't know, seem to be the trickiest of all? Or the, the ones that are just like the least amenable to coaching? Well, you can't coach an active alcoholic or an active heroin user. So you do have to do detox. So that's a misnomer that, oh, okay, so let's, you know, coach somebody on opiates slowly. You have to come off of it to do any kind of work. So that's the first thing. But in terms of like, what's the hardest thing to coach? Sex addiction's tough, but so is food addiction and eating disorder because you can't just stop those two activities. It's not like you could say, okay, take Amazon Prime off your phone. If you're going to shop, go to the store, get in the car and go only take cash. Don't take a debit card. So those are things you can do with sex. It's like, well, that's a tough one. I can't tell you not to do it. And 
food is a real tough one because you go grocery shopping. And if mm. you're a food addict and your trigger food is pizza, there is an aisle that has pizza in it. So you're going to yeah. want pizza. So what, what do you see as the uh, future of your coaching? Like, what is it evolving towards? What are you learning that, you know, what tweaks are you making to make it more effective? Well, we have a new life coaching program coming out called the Life Coach Method, which is a four-step process that taking coaching to the next level. And I'm utilizing all my cognitive behavioral training and my motivational interviewing training and my coaching training and my psychodrama training and my NLP to create it. So it's going to be everything in one lump sum. So it's going to be more powerful than any coaching program on the planet. It's going to be for addiction and also for other people in their daily life. So that's the next thing I'm working on. Okay. Very cool. The past two years, you know, or just about two years, you know, with uh, this whole virus situation, how has that changed coaching and the type of addictions people have and the problems they have that you've you've observed? Well, mental health went up 40% according to the CDC and addiction went up 30%. So people that didn't have an addiction per se started becoming dependent on substances because they were home. And they were bored mm. and they started drinking or eating or watching, you know, OnlyFans or whatever they were doing. And when it came time to open back up and go back to work, they went, uh-oh, I've been drinking a bottle of wine a day for a year, or I've been shopping on Amazon Prime for a year. And now I have to face that maybe I have a problem. So it in itself created a whole new hybrid of people that really don't fit the addict profile or the substance abuse profile but have a problem because of circumstances. Oh, interesting. Do you see that certain people are, you know, even if they've got a, um, I guess, an addiction induced by this whole, you know, situation, is it, are they more intractable, the problems now? Are there just more of them? Are they easier to deal with? Like, how would you characterize it? The people from COVID? The, the people, you know, like people that come to like, so if someone comes to you today and they have a sex addiction, for instance, versus two years ago, are they different or are they the exact same? If someone comes with a food addiction, no. same thing. No, or it's the same. It's the same. I mean, it boils down to boredom and escape. So it's just a matter of why, why do you choose your drug of choice? That's all. Mm. And then chemically, people are more predisposed to, to pick something over something else. For example, people who have depression gravitate towards alcohol, even though alcohol is a CNS suppressant and makes them more depressed. They just mm. gravitate towards it chemically. People that like caffeine gravitate towards uppers, cocaine, methamphetamine, diet pills, that kind of a thing. They want more and more mm. and more. So mm. you'll see certain people chemically, their body is predisposed to different things just based upon what they gravitate towards. And then, of course, there are people that do it all. You know, they do heroin, they do uppers, they do downers, they're all over the place. And their body just likes everything. And Ugh. they just want more of everything all the time. That's really interesting. Weird. What are your plans over the next you know, year or two? What's, what's the growth and expansion going to look like for you in your practice? Well, we have the retreats and the Sober on Demand where people can come to us for one-on-one coaching and the alternative to treatment. Uh, we've been going to them. We've expanded to Puerto Vallarta and Denver and Dallas and Miami. So we have that available. And then, of course, the, um, the Life Coach Method that's coming out, that's going to be our new project in the next year, I would say. Okay. I guess last question. Is it more difficult to deal with people that have more means and they've, you know, they have access to everything or people are people. And is it more like, um, once you figured out what their addiction is and why they have the addiction, then you can, you can help. So 
the latter in terms of help, I can always help them once I figure out the root cause. The difference mm. in dealing with somebody who has unlimited resources is, and this is kind of funny, they think they can fire you. So the way I work is I get paid up front for a certain amount of days, so 10 days, 15 days, whatever. And I'm hired to deal with the client that no one wants to deal with. My specialty is narcissistic men. Most people do not want to deal with them because they're, they're nasty. They can be rude and they believe, you know, they're right. So when I come in, I'm already paid and they'll tell me, you know, I'm not working with you. I don't like you. Okay. I don't care if you don't like me. I'm here and we're going to get to work. And usually within 10 minutes, they've called me every name in the book, the B word, the C word, the A word, the F word. Yep. Then when I told them none of that phases me and I'm not leaving, they usually end up having a temper tantrum like a five-year-old. I don't, I hate you, stupid. And I let, I let that ride. And within 30 minutes, I say, are we done? And are we ready to get to work? And they're so confused because no one's done that. No one's towed the line and not reacted to their behavior. Weird. That's how I get results because I let them go through their process. And then I just simply say, are we done now? Can can we get started? But who's paying you? Is it the person or is it their family member? Sometimes it's them. Sometimes it's a family member. Sometimes it's trust. Sometimes it's the director of a film. Um, Some of these guys are, they're they're used to being told yes. You know, they have an assistant and an assistant, another assistant and a manager and everyone gets paid when they work, but they always Mm. say yes. When I come in, it's no, we're not doing that. We're not doing it. And I don't care if you don't like it. The answer is no. And that's how we get results because you have to be uncomfortable to make a change. And a lot of these people are so used to having yes people. You look at Prince. Prince never would have died if he didn't have a surrounded by everyone who said yes. Wanted Xanax. They said, no problem. We'll get it for you. Instead of saying, we're not going to do that. We're not going to continue this process. Amy Winehouse is another one. Whitney Houston. All of these people. They all have a yes group, and I'm a no person. I come in and I say, we're not doing that. Hmm. And they don't know what to do with me at first. And then they're like, okay, I guess I have to play ball. And then they get on board. It's just weird, though. So you've had clients that have paid you. Then you started working with them. Then they still curse you out and all this other stuff. And do you say to them, like, hey, you already paid me too late? You know, like, what do you? Oh, yeah. It's kind of weird. I say, I had one that tried to fire me every day. (laughs) <laughs> Every morning I would show up and he'd go, I don't want to do this today. Okay. Well, I'm not going anywhere. He's like, well, I'm not going, I'm not doing it. He shut the door in my face. I said, okay. Next morning I'd come back, knock on the door. He answered the door. I'm not doing this today. Okay. Come back tomorrow. We did that for 15 days. And on day 15, he opened the door and he goes, yes, Callie. I said, are we, are we ready yet? And he goes, fine. Are you going to knock every day? I'm like, every day. Fine. And I went in and he did more work in the first two hours than he had done in 30 years. And he's like, I cannot believe how powerful this was. And I said, well, Hmm. you spent the first 14 days running from me like a little boy, a scared little girl. You know, you put your big girl panties on and here we are. So Hmm. it's getting them to get exhausted with the fact that I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I know you can't name names or anything, but is there a particular story of like, something crazy that you experienced that still came out on the good end, but you just couldn't believe that the situation was so weird or nuts. I'll give you the first one that, that, that I thought was crazy. And then they all got crazier from there. Right. I got hired for a client that was staying at the Beverly Wilshire in LA and mm-hmm. he had rented the entire floor. So 13 rooms, each room is $1,200 a night. 
purely oh, wow. for the ability to walk up and down the floor naked while smoking marijuana. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like something in a movie. Yeah, okay. Yep. And his dad called because he, he was a trust fund kid. And his dad called and said, we're hemorrhaging money. I don't know what's going on. His dad is in another country. Go figure it out. So <laughs> I get there and he's got every door open, tons of Amazon boxes, marijuana everywhere, women everywhere. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. And you're buck naked. What are we doing? And he just looked at me and he's like, bro, I'm just smoking weed. And I'm like, wow. Okay. He was smoking so much weed. He had such psychosis that he thought people were coming to get him. It was, it was insane how much weed. And the weed guy would just come right up to the floor and bring the weed. So I had to shut everything down. No weed guy, no Amazon, get him dressed, get him cleaned up. And that was interesting. And we had planned for 15 days. I ended up being there for two months and he wouldn't even let the maids come clean the room. So I had to get him to let the maids, and he was living there for six months. It's insanity. But yeah. that's one of my more, more fun cases because once he got on board, he got real successful. It's so strange. I mean, how do you scale something like this though? It sounds like you have to be there babysitting the person for you know weeks on end or more. Like what's a... How do you do it? Do you have other coaches that you've trained or how do you do more than one person at a time? Yeah. So I have a whole bunch of coaches and sober companions. So he had someone staying with him 24 seven in that space. And then I would come over every day and do the deep dive work. So we would do about five hours a day of coaching and intense work. And then the sober companion would stay with him throughout the rest of the day. Hmm. Interesting. And did he, uh, he came around and he's okay now? He's doing great now. Yeah. And his dad is pleased. And then, of course, they refer other people to you. And it's in that level, it's word of mouth because you have to be very careful with the public and what you do and who you are because they'll associate you with the celebrity, you know, so-and-so sober coach or so-and-so whatever. So you have to be very black ops with it. You know, come and go discreetly and keep it quiet. Wait, so it, it, I, would, I could see how it would, it would affect the star but it, does it affect you as the coach too? Like, does it pigeonhole you, or what does it do if you if people you knew worked if people knew you worked with like Celebrity X? I've been been able to get away with with it with only getting caught once, and they were able to avoid the photos for the paparazzi because we did everything like back door, you know, come and go in the back door and set mm. the celebrity out with other people. But I usually come in with executives. I come in as you know, I'm their personal assistant. With celebrities, I'll come in as a yoga teacher. So, you know, I'll come in with no makeup and yoga clothes and a, a hat. So I'm a little bit disguised. Huh. So I'm not, you know, introduced as, oh, that's my, you know, addictions coach. It's kind of behind the scenes. Okay, interesting. Um, are there any uh, tips from your training, you know, on how to spot people that are lying or, or, you know, your coaching work too? Like, what would you recommend for an average person that, you know, just has their own relationships, you know, husband, wife, kids, et cetera? Like, how can they improve their interaction with other people or do you not really have any advice in that regard well first thing you have to do is figure out is it a problem or is it your perception to a problem so that's the first thing for basic stuff like say for example you and your wife are having dinner and she chews loudly and it gets on your nerves so you feel irritated at her and you lash out at her over something else like all the amazon boxes in the garage they have nothing to do with why you're irritated so the first thing I tell people is, is it really a problem or is it your perception? So your perception is she chews loudly, right? That then irritates you, which then causes something. So it goes this way. A circumstance causes a thought, which causes 
a feeling which causes an action. So you have to stop and go, what's my circumstance? She's chewing loudly. What's my thought? I'm irritated. What's my feeling? I don't like this. My action is to lash out. What if my thought was different? What if my feeling was different? And what's my action? So that's the first step that I teach is that what are you really seeing? And in the scope of things, at the end of the day, is that a big issue? Probably not. You probably have bigger issues than that one. So that's where I start with people. And then from there, from perception, we go into other things. Oh, okay. What, what would you do based on that example? So if, if your partner has like something that just drives you nuts, a pet peeve, how do you tell them in a nice way without pissing them off? Or what do you do? <laughs> Well, it's really not their issue. It's your issue. That's the first thing. So her eating is not really her problem. It's your perception. That's the problem. So what can you do? You're asking her to correct something that bothers you, right? So the first thing I would say is, Mm. why does it bother you? What about her chewing bothers you? Is it an auditory? Is it a sensory problem that you have? Is it a manners issue? Where does it stem from? Where does your perception of this as a problem stem from? That's the first thing. And then we see if we can fix that. If we fix it, her chewing won't bother you. If we don't fix it, then the next question is, what else about her bothers you? Because, for example, like, I don't know if you, like, this in this scenario, let's say this couple was ready for a divorce. Everything he tells me is going to bother her, bother him. Everything. Mm. It's not just going to be chewing. So I don't know if they're there. Or this really is the only thing that bothers him. So I have to get to the bottom of that. I have to get to why it bothers him, where they are in their marriage. You know, and is she doing it on purpose to irritate him? So there's so many things I have to know why to be able to give the next directive, if that makes sense. Yeah, when you say doing it on purpose to annoy him, it just kind of, it makes me laugh because I I flash back to you, I guess, having to say to some clients, you know, you're acting like a five-year-old, et cetera. So it just felt like it was in the same realm. You know, where someone's deliberately trying to annoy the behavior and like that. You know? It happens. It happens in marriage, right? You're you're irritated at your husband because he was supposed to take the trash out and he didn't. So you had to take it out. So you're thinking, what can I do to irritate him? I'll hide the remote, yeah. right? Yeah. Now he can't find the remote. And you're going, well, I don't know. Let me help you look for it. All the while knowing it's in your car because you hit it. That's horrible. I never, well, I guess maybe it's, it's pretty ignorant, but it just seems like if, if, if you relate, I don't know, that happens in a relationship. My guess would be the relationship's pretty far onto the rocks by that point, you know? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's, well, it's teaching the client that you're reacting to something based upon your perception of something. So that's that's just like the light side of coaching, like the top realm is your perception. If we change your perception, the event usually changes, unless it's something big. Like, let's say you lose your job, right? That's not a perception problem. That's an action problem. So we have to treat that differently than your wife's chewing irritates you, right? So we have to identify it. We have to determine, is it a perception issue or is it truly a problem? Then how do we rectify the problem? Because both cause you stress. Your wife chewing and losing your job causes you stress. And then I ask people on a scale of one to 10, how bad is it? One being it's great. 10 being, I want to jump off the balcony. This is horrible. Where is this event? Where is this item? So maybe wife chewing is a three, losing my job is a 10, right? Mm. Now your perception changes, doesn't it? So your perception of your wife's chewing, which in the beginning was the worst thing in the world. Now we talk about losing your job. You realize, well, that's worse than my wife's chewing. So really, how bad is the problem? Well, Callie, it's really not as bad as I thought. 
it's something I honed in on. Okay, so where does that come from? And then we work backwards. Like, why did you why did you pick that event? What caused that? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. How do people find? Uh, I mean, it seems like you know everyone would again by default look for a therapist for their issues. How do people find a coach? Are they called? Like, like, what do you call then? Where do people find more people like you? Because, you know, maybe they can't afford you or they can, or you're too busy. So what do you, what do, you do? So, so addictions coach, they'll Google recovery coach, life coach. Some will come to me for therapy and I'll listen to them for a few minutes. And I'll say, you don't need a therapist. You need a coach. We're going to do coaching. So I might, you know, push them in that direction or I might do both. I can jump back and do therapy because I'm a therapist by trade and then jump in and do coaching. So we might do both. Oh, okay. So people can Google, if, you know, I, I want to get your information for sure. But again, in case you're booked up or you can't help somebody, they can Google coach X, like these different kinds of coaches, right? Right. Exactly. So recovery coach, life coach, addictions coach. I'm known as the celebrity addictions coach. So hmm. if they Google me, Lucy, I've been, you know, on TV and wrote a couple of books and all that fun stuff. Okay. Well, very cool. Well, Callie, this has been like a, I don't know, a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Um, and thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Feel Good Hemp is the first and only brand to offer high-quality CBD oil products alongside a free platform that offers proven self-help and self-healing techniques, all to help you feel good naturally. Feel Good Hemp was started by Noah and his wife, Danielle, after they used hemp oil and other techniques to save Noah's father from a terminal cancer diagnosis. Now, I heard this story firsthand when I interviewed Noah. It's a real good one, and it's probably the most heartfelt and compelling story I've ever heard about why someone started a CBD company. So Feel Good Hemp is more than just a great place to buy CBD products. It's actually a community of like-minded souls committed to feeling good and doing good. So use coupon code GENIUS33 at checkout to save a third or 33% site-wide on your first purchase. Visit feelgoodhemp.org to shop now and access their free empowerment platform. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.